Another thing that we've been in Hackett Research talking about for <laughs> almost as long as I have been in Hackett Research over 10 years is this over-reliance on recruiting and an underinvestment in training. There's real financial impact by overemphasizing. It's a lot more expensive to have turnover and have to replace people than it is to invest in people and have them ready to, to fill a job when vacancies. Welcome to the Hackett Group's Business Acceleration Podcast. Week after week, you'll hear from top experts on how to avoid obstacles, manage detours, and celebrate milestones on the journey to world-class performance. Hi, my name is Franco Giramonti. I'm your host for today's podcast. And my guests are Tony DiRomaldo, our Senior HR Research Director from the Hackett Group. And I'm also joined by David Polichuk, an advisor in our HR advisory practice, again, at the Hackett Group. Gentlemen, you want to say hello? Hey, Franco. Glad to be here. Hey, Franco. Tony, look forward to our conversation. Great. Thanks, guys. Well, listen, employee turnover is just a super hot topic with a lot of our clients. It's all over the news. I know there is a professor out of Texas A&M, an organizational psychologist professor named Anthony Klotz, and he coined the term the great resignation. And since he's coined that term, it's really been picked up by the media, and we're seeing a lot of organizations experience uh, pain when it comes to retaining their talent or finding new talent. And to a certain degree, I mean, it's really hampering their ability to bounce back from COVID or, or to deal with these supply chain disruptions. And so, Tony, you wrote a blog about this, but the, the blog was titled, uh, The Great Resignation Calls for a Big Reset, which is you know kind of different than what we're hearing in the news. I mean, can you talk a little bit more about why is it a big reset? Yeah, I mean, the way I think of it, I mean, what we've been seeing, a lot of unprecedented stuff going on. And I think companies have been, you know, kind of scampering and, and kind of in knee-jerk reactions. But I think if you step back, you know, what we're seeing today, even though it was triggered by the conditions that COVID created, it's really rooted in a bunch of trends and actually four, but uh, that really are created the context for what we're seeing today. And I'll start with a big one. I think they're all big, but you know what I term the C-suite's obsession with productivity. And I mean, this is an obviously going on for a while. And the manifestation of that has been overwork and burnout. And we've heard a lot about that, particularly with workers who are working from home and people working in the factories or in areas where they're, you know, maybe they're in danger of getting the virus, et cetera. But I think, you know, that problem has been around for a long time. <laughs> Burnout didn't just appear when COVID appeared. And, and it's really rooted in a corporate culture and kind of C-suite that makes it a badge of honor where you kind of put the business interests, the financial interests of the company ahead of everything. And I think that's part of the problem that's led to after a year, year and a half of working, you know, under extraordinary and stressful conditions for many people, I think they've had enough. And, and that's been one of the triggers for what 
as you pointed out, Anthony Klotz termed the great resignation. Yeah, I think it's a great call out, Tony. One of the things that I see is, you know, productivity is used as the reason for, or at least in a lot of cases at the C-suite, in the C-suite is used as the, the reason that we need folks back in the workplace, right? For those folks that are working remotely, now we want them back in the workplace. And one of the big reasons cited is productivity. And I think that's probably misinformed in a couple of ways, largely because you know productivity as an enterprise-wide measure is a bit of a myth when you think about it. There are certain parts of the workforce where productivity is clearly measurable, an accounts payable or accounts receivable clerk, people doing transactional work, obviously on a shop floor in a retail environment. But for an accountant, what does productivity look like? For a you know, an application engineer in a factory, what does productivity look like? So I think the idea that productivity can be this sort of general concern that is a rationale for returning everybody to the workplace is misused. And, and I think it needs a bit of unpacking. And, and our approach to this is to say, as you're thinking about productivity and other factors for workplace flexibility, it requires unpacking it at a workforce segment level and not just trying to make broad assumptions and statements about productivity for the overall workforce. So there really, there's obviously a big push for productivity, which we know throughout history that can really cause some disruptions with your workforce and the level of engagement. But I guess in some ways too, that some organizations are over-reliant on the talent markets. In other words, they're thinking, oh, we could just replace these people or we don't necessarily have to invest a lot in training. Uh, Tony, can you maybe just expand on that point as well? That, that one certainly caught my interest. And I mean, just to stay on that other point for a second, I think part of the problem with the productivity, it's not that, you know, it's a legitimate issue, but I think there's this overemphasis on individual productivity, right? And everybody's paranoid. They're not working hard enough, right? We've got to continue to improve, improve. When in fact, the bigger and more impactful way to look at productivity is process productivity. Is the structure of your systems, right? If you want to really create, like you can improve an individual's productivity, but that may not really improve the overall productivity of an organization. You've got to change your approach, your processes, support it better with technology. Those are the things that get a much bigger payoff. And to that point about talent recruiting, Another thing that we've been in Hackett Research talking about for <laughs> almost as long as I have been in Hackett Research over 10 years is this over-reliance on recruiting and an underinvestment in training. I mean, if you look at, there's real financial impact by overemphasizing. It's a lot more expensive to have turnover and have to replace people than it is to invest in people and have them ready to, to fill a job when vacancies. I mean, just from our own HR benchmarking database, we see that organizations that depend heavily on external recruiting end up spending 44% more than organization to fill positions than organizations that have a much better balance and emphasis on internal placement of their people. So I think that's been a key factor here because when you have this emphasis on external recruiting, if we lose people, we go out in the market and we just get someone, okay, when you have this unusual 
an unprecedented situation that we've seen with, quote, the great resignation. And you have these turnover levels and changes in the labor market that we've seen. And everybody's out there trying to replace people. Well, first of all, we haven't developed enough people. And secondly, we're all out there vying for a scarce resource. This is what you end up with. I would argue that companies should really look hard at their role in creating these circumstances rather than just complaining about the situation or looking for as if it's an issue of, well, if we recruit differently, uh, yes, you can improve your recruiting techniques and tap into different pools and whatnot, but fundamentally recognize you've created this situation and look at ways to change it going forward. Yeah, I think it was a great point. To I mean, when I think about, I'm talking to a lot of clients about their talent acquisition woes right now, and I find I have to continually remind them talent acquisition is hopefully a solution to what a bigger problem is, which is retention. And, and just continually having to kind of recast the problem as a retention crisis, not a talent acquisition crisis, or at least their joint problems. One of the things I find interesting is, you know, we've been talking for a number of years now around this shift to shorter and shorter tenure and employment that, you know, employees, if, if they stick with you with, for three to five years, that's a good thing, whereas it used to be, obviously, folks would stick with their employers for quite a bit longer. And we think about that and talk about that as a phenomenon of the generational shift. You know, it's the millennials that are driving that. It's the Gen Xers, now it's the Gen Z. But, you know, it, it all started a whole bunch of years ago, in at least in the U.S., with the advent of defined contribution plans, swapping for defined benefit plans. So it used to be that companies made lifelong commitments to their employees, even after employment, right? Through the death of yourself and or your beneficiaries, the company's going to take take care of you. And, and so that shift, and then put alongside that, the shift away from things like apprenticeship programs, where we developed talent from within for the electricians in our plants and our CNC machinists and all these kinds of things, as well as other training budgets getting pinched. That's not just HR feeling that pinch, that's our entire workforce now recognizing that the empl employer has a little bit less value it's placing on developing you as an employee. And so all of this puts pressure on finding talent from the outside when we could be developing it from within. And what we're seeing now is the talent is not available in the outside market, especially for some of the emerging skills that employers are looking for. You simply can't find that talent, and yet you've skinned down your training teams, your learning and development teams to the point where you don't have capacity to build the talent that you also can't buy in the open market. It's a real predicament. When I think about this talent management and the retention of talent and the building of your talent internally, I can't help but think about a, a book that was written many years ago called The Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. And he talked about how societies overhaul that were farmers were much more successful than the, the hunter-gatherer types. And they were able to, you know, obviously grow, increase their populations, which gave them more power. It's almost like organizations that are better at retaining their talent, growing their talent and investing the time, right? They're in for the long game, can do more successful and survive much more of these, uh, these shocks to the system. You know, the other thing is, as we think about COVID and the chasing of this talent and everything, I, I think people are starting to, at least employees, have an issue when it comes to like unrealistic um, 
job requirements, or at least employers. I mean, the perception is, is that, oh, I don't want to really do this job. It's too dirty. Or, you know, if I'm going to do this job, you better pay me a hell of a lot more. So we're starting to see this uh, issue of unrealistic requirements, as well as unappealing pay. Tony, maybe just can you expand on that a little bit about what you're seeing there? You hear it from so many people in the job market. You know, just look at the job sites, look at job descriptions, the experience level, the skills level. I mean, it's like we design jobs or we say, look, the requirements for these jobs, we're looking for perfect people. It's like, and then we wonder why we can't find them. So there's a a certain segment of the job market where that's a problem that's been going on for the last couple decades. And again, part of that is when you're in a buyer's market for labor, right, where you can sit back and there are many more people out there that would like to work for you than you have positions, right? You can hold out for this so-called perfect candidate. And I think we've gotten lazy and kind of fallen into that pattern. That's one part of it. The other part of it is the whole issue of designing you know, jobs that, again, are are very, you know, entry level, low skill, to your point, dirty, hard, dangerous, unappealing, terrible schedules, you name it, no benefits, minimum pay. And again, these are jobs that for many years, there were always people out there that were willing to take them. And over the last year or so, as a result of many factors created by COVID as well as not created by COVID, these jobs no longer can attract people. And so companies have had to really scamper and we're seeing a lot of movement, right? In terms of raising pay significantly and adding benefits and whatnot. But you know, the jobs themselves, it's, it, you gotta do things like that in order to attract people to come in and take them. Tony, I've got to say, this is one where I have a shred of hope, especially as it comes to job requirements. One of the things that we're hearing, and this is really as much around the sort of worldwide social justice movement that really relaunched, if you want to say it that way, in 2020, is that job requirements are really seen as a barrier to diverse talent, as well as to talent in general, in the talent acquisition cycle. And so really rethinking job requirements, eliminating experience requirements where it really isn't easily validated, reconsidering, and I'm, I'm really hopeful around this one. This is my whole career. We've had this big question mark around college degrees as a requirement for jobs that don't have a real trained skill set that you would get from college, and yet we have that college degree requirement on so many jobs that filters out a lot of highly qualified and, in some cases, experienced candidates. We're seeing companies reevaluate these kind of requirements and skinny them down to what's truly needed for somebody to come in and learn the job on the job. I'm hopeful on this one. I think that this is one where we're seeing some movement and uh, we're talking to plenty of clients that are rethinking those job requirements as it relates to experience, degree requirements. And then that gets into, you know, comes back to the idea of training. Can you hire the raw skill and talent and then build the actual job skills on the job or through kind of boot camp type training? Thanks, uh, gentlemen. I really think it's you're making a lot of really good, compelling arguments in terms of the the root causes of this thing, and and in particular, this stuff obviously didn't just show up in COVID. I'm sure it was exacerbated by COVID. 
now that we're in this problem, though, as as some of our listeners are probably wondering, okay, how do I fix this? But, you know, I don't think there are any quick fixes to this, right, Tony? I, I think it's going to be some really deep, uh, thoughtful strategies as well as some considerable investment of time and of effort and money to fix these things. Can you maybe just uh, talk about what in your blog you recommended to organizations to consider? I think there are four things that can be done that would have huge impact. One is abandon what I call the burn and churn talent models, right? These models where we hire people and don't really commit to them, right? We try to get as much as we can and we almost anticipate they're going to leave at a certain point and then we're going to replace them. So we're treating you know, talent as almost an inexhaustible resource. And so in my view, we've got to move away from this kind of talent hunter, you can always go out and find talent to more of a talent farmer mindset. And that means developing people and making sure that people are in in your organization can move up and move around and step into jobs. And we can do a lot better. And we know how to do that. We just don't put enough resources to make that happen. I think on you know the lower end of the scale in terms of the jobs or the dirty jobs or whatever you want to call them to me we re- really got to redesign those jobs that are built on low cost labor and you know low level skills and either pay much more for them and provide much more benefit if we can't redesign the job or actually redesign the job itself. So it's a much better, much more fulfilling uh, work. I think, you know, I mentioned training, Dave made some good points, but I think overall we're skimping on training and we've got to get away from this mindset as, you know, we only invest in training if we can see an immediate payoff, right? And we can measure it right off the bat and quantify it. I have to say one very interesting trend that does give me hope, and actually it solves a couple problems if it works, is this trend we're seeing with companies like Walmart, McDonald's, Target, Starbucks, Amazon, right? All with these uh, low productivity, low uh, skilled jobs, but they're now offering fully paid college, it could be technical school, community college, as well as four-year university, fully paid tuition for their workers. And this is a way, if you think about it, right, now you have to stay with the company, right, for them to pay for it. So this means a McDonald's, whatever, they could fill people will want to be in those jobs and be in those entry-level frontline jobs for a couple of years while they're in school. And then when they graduate, well, they'll leave and move on to something else. And that'll help us solve a problem we haven't talked about which is upskilling, right? We've got a lot of jobs out there that we've got too many people who have the skills that don't fit. This is going to help solve that problem. How about you, Dave? What do you see? I mean, Tony's obviously given us a lot to think and to ponder as well, but uh, what do you see in, in your clients, you know, in terms of how they're trying to tackle this issue? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I'll throw out one easy one and one hard one. The easy one is manager training. You know, it seems like HR teams cycle through manager training every couple few years as a priority. And then as retention starts to move up on the scale, HR teams come back to or or other engagement related issues. 
HR comes back around to, oh yeah, we should be doing training for managers. We need to re-up on people management skills for our frontline managers as well as our more senior leaders. And this needs to be a continual thing. You know, it's like it's like doing the laundry, doing the dishes. There are always more dishes to wash. There are always new managers to train. And so really keeping a regular cadence on manager training, because that's where the employee engagement is driven the strongest, as, as is performance. It's where your attrition comes from, is, you know, managers who lack those skills. So just continually re-upping on manager skills training. So that's my easy one. The harder one, I would say, is really investing some time and energy into strategic workforce planning. And so this is essentially two broadly, it's two broad steps. One is a gap analysis that says, what are the skills I have? What's the inventory of capabilities I have in my workforce today compared to what I'm going to need, say, two, three, four, five years from now? And what's the gap? And as I understand that gap, then I can make the decision around what I'm going to do about it. And that's the second piece. And what I'm going to do about it is probably a series of different things for different workforce segments, but it includes finding talent from the outside, which obviously, as we're talking about, is less and less available, especially for some of these specialized skill sets. And then it's also developing employees from within. The value of that, one huge value of that, is that if I know today that I'm going to be building out new manufacturing capacity, I'm going to need new electricians, HVAC specialists, I'm going to need new CNC machinists and other skilled trades, I can reinstitute those apprenticeship programs now so that four years from now, I'm graduating people with now trade skills that I can use in my plants and I'm not relying on a market that I know won't be able to supply them. Likewise, if I know I'm going to need a certain type of developer six months from now, I can hire the raw talent today, institute boot camps to build up those skills so that six months from now, I'll have the skills I need because I know based on my market analysis that those skills won't be available in the open market. So this kind of interaction between strategic workforce planning, planning as a HR capability and the initiatives it drives in talent acquisition, as well as in learning and development, and then in your performance and succession processes, I think is a, is a real critical one that's worth re-upping on for HR functions. Dave, though, I can't help but add, though, I think once you give a lot of that training to the managers, I think it's important that in some ways organizations hold managers accountable because we know that uh, managers probably have the most impact on retention of employees. And I think if you've given them a lot of training and support, you'd want some accountability there to make sure that they are at least held accountable in some way, shape or form, either bonus structures or some other means um, for the retention of their talent. That's a great call out. I think one of the things that a lot of companies miss in performance management is that they look at performance management as a whole bunch of interactions between managers and employees. And what they miss is the information that that generates about leadership in your organization and the quality of management that's happening through that performance review process, which is indicative in most cases of how the day-to-day -day management of employees is happening. So I couldn't agree with you more on that. Well, listen, gentlemen, I know we could probably talk for hours and hours on this uh, topic. It's, it is a critical topic to a lot of organizations, but uh, we are definitely out of time. So I want to thank you, Dave and Tony, for joining me on and sharing your insights on this uh, podcast. Thank you so much for that. Thanks, Franco. Appreciate the opportunity to uh, participate. Thanks for listening. You can find the audio, helpful resources, and a transcript of each episode at podcasts.thehackagroup.com. If you liked this episode, please share it. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts 
or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. We'd welcome your feedback by tapping the rating on this or any episode, or send us an email at podcast at thehackitgroup.com. The Hackett Group is a global leader in defining and enabling world-class performance. Learn how we can assist with your improvement journey at www.thehackettgroup.com.